Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So I think that today we're really gonna enjoy the guests that we have um, on the show here joining us because we're really gonna be learning about culture. We're gonna be learning about how the culture may or may not be impacted when you have different offices and then also building and scaling. So I guess without further ado, Gautam Tambay, welcome to the show today. Uh, Alejandro, thank you for having me. So excited. So originally born in India, obviously you, you kind of like jump from place to place quite a bit because your father was in the army, but tell us about your life growing up there. Yeah, thanks for asking. You know, um, I, my dad was in the army, like you said, and so that meant that we moved to a new city every three years. And at the time, I didn't realize how much of a boon that was going to be for me over the course of my career. Because uh, what it gave me is the ability to be dropped into any new context, quickly understand what's going on, quickly make new friends, and really adapt. And that's that served me really well. So I, you know, wouldn't trade that upbringing for anything else. So how do you think that that? Because obviously entrepreneurship and being an entrepreneur, there's a lot there of dealing with certainty. But I guess since you were moving quite a bit and you had to make new friends every three years, I'm sure that that shaped you up a little bit and being able to deal with, with uncertainty and uncertain moments a bit better. For sure, right? I think both uncertainty and change, which are so um, core to being an entrepreneur and so much a part of the journey, I think I, I just learned to deal with those very early. And the funny thing is, I don't think I realized that I was learning that skill because when we were growing up, that was just life. Like every three years you moved and there was no alternative. When you're six years old, that's the only life you've known. And uh, and so only in hindsight have I been able to connect the dots and say, that was actually something that gave me these life skills that let me adapt to new circumstances, uh, really you know, make connections more easily, which is very valuable when fundraising, when hiring, um, and really get to understand different kinds of people and understand different perspectives because we moved to different parts of the country. And Culturally, you know, India is one country, but really it's like Europe, like in the, the North is as different from the South as, you know, Norway is from Italy. And, and so that really, you know, helped me be able to understand different people's contexts and motivations uh, very easily and faster. And, you know, it's, it's interesting too, because then you went and study mechanical engineering. But one of the things that I want to ask you is that most of the entrepreneurs that are from India originally, they 
all have the engineering background. I mean, why, why is this? It's unbelievable. <laughs> you know, that's funny you ask. See, this, is, this has changed. Uh, but when I was growing up, if you were good at school, then really there were two things you could do. You could either become an engineer or you could become a doctor. If you wanted to do the crazy risky thing, you became a lawyer, right? Uh, right. And, and, and that's just the India I grew up in. It's, it's changed quite a bit since. Even my sister is seven years younger and she's a designer and that's not a profession that I was even, you know, in the realm of possibility uh, that was offered to me. So I think exposure really matters and I think that's all we were exposed to. Uh, and so it's sort of almost a given that if you're academically doing well, then you end up in engineering or medical school. So then let's talk about you ending up in D.C., so how do you land in, in D.C., you know, like all the way from India? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so you know, one of the, the great things about, so I, I, about engineering school was, you know, I think a couple of years into it, I realized two things. One, I didn't actually want to be a mechanical engineer. I wasn't very good at it. Uh, but I really liked what I was, the way of thinking that engineering taught me, like a structured way to break down any problem and and... And so that's what I got really attracted to. So over time, I actually ended up doing more um, kind of applied math kind of work in my engineering program. And uh, and then you know, there's a company called Capital One uh, based in D.C., which at the time would hire a couple of people every year from uh, the engineering school that I went to in Delhi. And they would bring them out to, to Washington, D.C. to work on uh, basically what I think of as you know applied math problems, which is you know at the time data analytics, data science. And so I got recruited into one of those roles uh, on campus, uh, which was um, which ended up then changing the trajectory of my career in terms of like being exposed to the U.S. and uh, learning a lot. So how was that, uh, you know, that experience of coming here? I mean, was it kind of like a culture shock? Yeah, you know, it, it certainly was. Uh, and uh I had spent some time before and done a couple of internships, one in France, one in Norway. Uh, and those had been my first exposures to living outside of India. I think I think coming to DC was definitely a, a culture shock. I, rem- I remember, um, I think it was my first week in DC walking into a bookstore, Barnes & Nobles. That was still, still a thing in 2003. And this, you know, I think it was President Bush was... Uh, in the White House, and I remember walking into a store and seeing a like the first thing I saw was you know that, that table where there's like a lot of display books. Like there were three or four books that were like jokes about George W. Bush. Uh, that was the book, right? And and I'm like I'm less than a mile from the White House, and that was like that was mind blowing for me to say, wow, like this is you know the freedom of speech is is really quite something. So and and you know in India is relatively good at freedom of speech, but even there, like I, I couldn't imagine uh, that you would be you know a mile from the the president or the prime minister's office and and actually see uh, books that were making fun of the prime minister. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in Spain, for example, if you talk bad about the king, you know, back in the day, you would be put in, into jail. So. Um, so I can see I can see what you mean with that. So so here in Capital One, you know, you you lasted for a few years before you go into Bain, and I know that Bain was a was a big uh, breakthrough for you, and and the way that perhaps you broke big problems into small problems to really tackle them and make something happen. So tell us about landing in Bain and and then going back to India to open Bain there. Yeah. So 
you know, joining Bain was actually a pretty interesting journey for me because at the time, Bain did not hire, only hired you straight out of college or straight out of business school, right? There was no, you worked for a couple of years and then you enter uh, uh, Bain. So that wasn't a thing. So what I did was the closest school uh, to DC, actually, I lived in Richmond, Virginia at the time, the closest school to Richmond, Virginia that uh, Bain hired at was UVA, uh, University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And that was about a two-hour drive uh, from where I was. And I saw online that they have an employer information session for people who go to UVA. And I just hopped in the car and drove out. And I was like, you know, put on my best clothes and said, I'll just show up there and see what happens. And I went up, attended the talk, even though I didn't really, you know, wasn't a student at UVA. And at the end of it, went up to the partner who gave the presentation. And I said, you know, I don't go to school here, but I think I could be really uh, I'm really interested. I, I think I have some great experience and I would love to apply. And he said, sure, email me, uh, which I did. And I had no expectation of getting a response. And turns out that uh, uh, he, you know, something about what I said to him uh, or my resume spoke to him. And he actually ended up giving me an interview, which was, uh, which was great, not just from the fact that it helped me break into uh, this new role or opportunity, but also it was great validation of the fact that you miss a hundred percent of the shots that you don't take. And so if I had just sort of sat there and said, Oh, like Bain doesn't hire from, um, from, uh, anywhere outside of college, uh, and not taken that, that shot, I would never have gotten it. And so I, I ended up being the first person, at least in Bain Boston that they had hired, uh, not directly out of college, uh, for that undergraduate program. So obviously this for you, you know, was a, was an interesting journey with Bain and, and I'm wondering here, like, what do you think makes a, because there's so many people coming out of McKinsey or Bain, why do you think consultants make such great entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, it, I, I, I wondered about that. I don't, you know, is, is it that it's the training you get in consulting that makes you a better entrepreneur or people who are well suited to be entrepreneurs, you know, seek out those careers early in their uh, seek out consulting jobs early in their career. It could be, you know, I'm not sure whether it's causation or correlation, but I do think that there are things I learned in my two and a half years at Bain that have stayed with me throughout my career. Um, as you were saying, taking any problem, breaking that down uh, into its components, being able to hone in on what is most important in any given situation. That's something that, you know, consulting trains you really well to do. So I, uh, that was really valuable. So obviously, after after this experience with Bain, then you go to business school. You go to to Wharton, and uh, obviously, great entrepreneurs as well coming from Wharton. But this was a really nice uh, segue to moving to San Francisco, and obviously, there that was your first exposure to the startup world. And I'm sure that that was quite eye opening as well for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was when I was in business school, and it's sort of funny, right? Like I thought I was going to go to business school to learn entrepreneurship and, and actually become an entrepreneur. I now routinely advise people that if really what they want to do is something entrepreneurial, then they should skip uh, grad school uh, because there are, uh, you know, it's, I think if, because if you frame the problem as if you have two years and a hundred thousand dollars, $150,000 to invest in your entrepreneurial career is business school, the best investment. And nobody framed it like that to me. Uh, and in hindsight, I mean, again, I was very, feel very fortunate to have for having had the learning and the friends that I made at business school. But I think the, there was no better training for entrepreneurship than just joining uh, a startup. And so 
coming out of my business school class in 2010, it was the unusual thing to do. I'd done my intern- summer internship in private equity. Uh, most of my classmates were going to Wall Street or consulting jobs. And uh, so they thought I was a little crazy to come join a no-name startup in San Francisco. There was only a handful of people in my class who did something like that. And uh, I think it just completely, you know, coming to Silicon Valley just completely uh, changed my perspective on entrepreneurship and gave me a lot uh, that I have now used in my career. And obviously here, you know, uh, you were in, in Inmobi, you know, like the um, the mobile advertising company there. I mean, it literally went from 80 people to hundreds. And this was an opportunity for you to really see a company growing so quickly, but then as well to see what goes well and what goes poorly. So what were some of the lessons that you took away from, from the experience here? Yeah, totally. I think a couple of things that I learned from Naveen, the founder CEO of Inmobi, that he did really well. Uh, first, actually, he, you know, I had applied to a business development job at this mobile advertising startup coming out of business school. I had never worked at a tech company. I had never worked in business development and I had you know, never worked for a startup. Right? And so Naveen had the foresight to say, I'm going to take a bet on this person. And he didn't have to, and he could have found sort of more traditional candidates for the role. But I think that was really empowering for me. And then it goes further than that, right? Another thing that Naveen is, was the master of, and is, I think still is, is really hiring great people and then empowering them and letting go. So an example of this was, I think, about a year into my time, not even, maybe like nine months into my time at Inmobi, we had an opportunity to acquire this company which uh, was super interesting and could be very strategic for us. Now, I think the, the whole company at the time was maybe 150 people. And Naveen said, hey, why don't you come, come along with me to, to uh, meet this company? We have this conversation with the, with the founder of this company we're looking to acquire. Turns out they are also being wooed by Google and Apple to be acquired by them. Right? Wow. Uh, and this is a time when Inmobi had raised a total of maybe like $20 million. We didn't have a lot of money in the bank. And we walk out of that meeting, you know, it's a meeting starts at 6 p.m. We leave uh, this company's offices, Sprout's offices at like 11 p.m. And then Naveen and I go to a coffee shop in San Francisco and Naveen like does some math on the back, literally on the back of a napkin and says, Gautam, you're going to run this deal and make this happen. And I'm like, are you kidding me, Naveen? Like I have never run an acquisition. I have never done anything of this sort. Like this is critical for the company. We are going up against Google and Apple. You really want me to do this? And Naveen said something that's always stuck with me. He said, listen, I've never done an acquisition either, right? And so one of us is going to have to learn it and spend 50, 60, 70 hours a week getting up to speed and making this happen. Better you than me, because then it lets me focus on other parts of my job. And that was mind, first of all, it was mind blowing that that's how we thought. But then in hindsight, two things, right? Like one of it is so empowering for me. I've never worked harder, right? Like that was just like the next eight weeks, this was my life. And I was like, I can't like let this it was a big, big, big opportunity. So I was like, I'm not going let, to let, let, let him down. Uh, and the second thing was, like you know, Naveen said, like it actually enabled him, it empowered him to do other things. Uh, and so we won that, of course, story ends well. We, uh, we won that deal with like an all-stock acquisition against Google and Apple's cash offers. And, uh, right? and, and then that company, the, the start acquisition ended up being really definitive to Inmobi's journey. So uh, that was something is like hire great people, uh, and really empower them and let them run with big things and step away 
and have the courage to do that as a founder. That's something they did really well. Uh, in terms of things that could have been better, I think that you know, as they went through that hyper growth phase of like raising two hundred million dollars and 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 really expanding the team from like a couple hundred to uh, oh sorry, like you know, hundred to maybe eight hundred. I think a lot of things broke down in 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 corporate communication and in in alignment in culture, which over time they had to go back and fix that debt. But I think there are things that they we, we could have done better uh, from the beginning in terms of setting those things up for success, and that's something now we take very seriously at at Springboard as we are going through that phase of hyper growth. So then let's talk about that. So what made you make the switch and and say, hey, I'm going to do it, you know, myself here. I'm going to take the leap of faith and I'm going to make it happen on my own. Yeah. You know, one thing, so I loved how much I was learning at Inmobi, uh, you know, hyper growth, really good people to work with. Uh, one thing that I didn't care much about personally was the industry we were in. Mobile advertising, it didn't get me out of bed. And so I was like, if I'm going to leave and do something of my own, which is always you know, an, an itch that I always had. In fact, I was very open about uh, that with uh, the Inmobi founders when I joined them. Uh Uh, is that I have this itch to do something on my own, but I was like, if I'm going to do something, then it has to be something I care really deeply enough about to be able to wake up and do this for the next 10 years or more, even if all the chips are down, right? And so that's something, so I was like, what problems do I care really deeply about? So I, I grew up in a family of, of educators, three of my grandparents were teachers. Uh, both of my parents uh, have been teachers. So my mother was a school teacher and my dad is a retired army officer, but he now teaches at a university. So education kind of runs in the family. Uh, but then around that time, I saw my sister. She was, um, you know, an illustrator, applied to go to grad school to learn UX design, and then decided that she couldn't bring herself to take a $100,000 loan and decided not to go to the schools that she got into. So that really was seminal for me in realizing that, wow, like there's got to be a better way in this day and age to help people get the skills they want to get to the careers they want. And that that that's sort of what got me into the education space. And I met my co-founder along the way and she had very different motivation, but you know, really strong reasons to want to do uh, something in education. We had lots of common friends and we started working on some ideas together. So that's kind of how we got started. So then tell us about the early days. What were some of the early days like? Yeah, uh, tough. You know, I think the, the first couple of years and I'd say until we had product market fit uh, were really challenging. I think the There's this phase in a startup's journey, which is existential, where you know really you don't know if you're doing something that's going to have value, right? You're spending a lot of time and energy in this, and everything is really um, uh, at the time unclear, right? And so, and that's also when people are questioning you the most, right? Like that's the time uh, when my father-in-law, who who is you know is a man I really love and I know he cares about me, like he would ask me, "When are you going to get? A, when are you going to get a real job?" Right. And like he's doing it out of out of like, his intent is caring, but that's not how it sounded to me at the time. Right. So so I think that's when people are really questioning you. And I think that existential phase was was tough. Um, I think the thing that helped is just having a group of people around me, uh, my co-founder and uh, just our early team members who were just having a good time together right and i think it's like the days are going to be there's going to be ups and downs but there's this like small group of people who are just kind of going to battle with every day and you're as long as you're enjoying it and enjoy, enjoying every day that is at least for me what helped me help carry me absolutely so what ended up being the business model of springboard for the people that are listening to get it yeah that's a great question so so today we 
are we, we enable people to transition careers through intensive online programs right, into new into what we call new economy careers. So, for example, you want to become a data scientist, you want to become a designer, you want to become a software engineer, you can take a springboard program that's going to be nine months long. It's completely online. It's very intensive. And every single student gets paired with a mentor from the industry who works with them one-on-one every week on a video call. And what we do that's unique is we say, at the end of the program, we guarantee that you will get a new job in the field that you're looking for, or we'll refund your entire tuition. And we've had thousands of people come through our programs. We've had to issue like less than a couple dozen job guarantee refunds. Very cool. And I know that uh, obviously for you and for your co-founder, there was an event that certainly saved the company. And it was uh, that moment where your team members really pulled you out and say, hey, guys, you know, like this is this is what we're seeing. And that was a big break, 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 break point for you guys. So tell us about this. Yeah, thank you for asking that. You know, so this is 2016. We were, um, the team was about, 15 people at the time i think maybe 16 and we had not raised a lot of money at the time i think we'd raised a small angel round maybe we raised a million million and a half dollars to date and we hit a point where revenue was declining and at the same time you know we had four three or four months of runway remaining and that's one of the hardest things that you can have is you see that you're going to basically, you know, for, for me and my co-founder, it was like, this was our dream. And we could like see it in front of us, like going to nothing. Right. And we'd be letting down everyone, we'd be letting down our investors, our customers, our, our team. Uh, and that was a really sort of scary moment. And, and our instinct at that time, at least my instinct was to kind of hide, go into a shell, right? Like just kind of like put the blanket or covers over you and not come out. And the last thing I wanted to do is not, you know, it was to talk, talk about this with my team. So my co-founder and I were extremely stressed about this. Obviously, this was eating us up. Um, and, and because when, when your revenue is declining and you're going to run out of money, that's the last, that's the worst time to try and raise outside capital as well, right? Uh, so one evening, one afternoon, three of our early team members, um, Monique, Phil, and Roger, they said to my co-founder and me, they said, we want to take you out for dinner. Uh, and we said, okay, sure. And they took us out for dinner and they said, guys, what's going on? Like the numbers aren't looking good. And we said, yeah, we know that. And they said, well, so why are you not stressed about it? And we said, well, we are really stressed. We're not sleeping. So then they're like, okay, why are you not involving us? Like how much runway do we have? And I, you know, at that point, obviously if they asked me point blank, I'm not going to lie. So I said, yeah, three, four months. And they're like, well, why are you not involving us? And why haven't you told us so far? And we said, well, if we, we, we thought that if we told you uh, all of this, you would leave and that would make things worse. And at that point, uh, they said something which has always, always stay with me. And they said, if that's what we wanted to do, we would have joined Google, right? Uh, we didn't join this company to leave when things are bad. We joined because we want to be part of a story and build something. And that's why we are here. So you have to involve us. And, and that was such, I mean, it's like, I, I have like, I can remember this moment very visually, like where I was sitting and this sort of conversation, because it really has been one of the biggest leadership lessons in, in my career is that if you hire the right people, which thankfully we had, then 
you really, when you have a problem and you have bad news, you want it to flow. Like I thought until then, my job as a leader was to be sort of a shit umbrella. You know what I mean? Like just kind of protect yeah. everybody from bad things. And uh, I think what I realized is actually, if I didn't do that and if I let the bad news flow, I'm going to have 16 people working on a problem instead of two people. Uh, and so next day, we talked to the whole company. We did an all hands. We were very transparent and said, this is what's going on. We need to turn this around. Uh, we had a plan A, which was every single person, no matter what your job, you can be an engineer, you can be a customer support person. Everyone's going to work on a revenue project. And so we had a plan to get this to break even in, in, in five months. And then Parul and I in parallel said, we're going to go to every investor who in the past we've said no to, or they've said no to us. And we're just going to say, get any amount of capital that we can to extend the runway a little bit. Uh, and of course, you know, we are here to still tell the story. So obviously, you know, the story uh, ended well, but uh, in four months, we got to break even and we were able to raise uh, a million and a half dollars, which was a lot for us at the time. Uh, and that completely, so we went from like about to run out of money to this place where we were break even and had money in the bank. Uh, and it was just game changing. And the company wouldn't exist today if we hadn't had that come to Jesus moment with our team saying, you know, you need to involve us. Uh, so that's, yeah. That's amazing. So obviously for an operation like this, I mean, you've you've raised a little bit of money. So uh, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, we've raised $53 million to date. And I, and I believe that during one of those uh, rodeos, during one of those fundraising rodeos, is the very first time there where you actually and your co-founder, you had the voice raised against one another. So what, what happened there? Yeah. So this was, you know, so I just told you the story of when we turned things around. Um, yeah. Right. And the reason we were in that place of not having capital and being possibly about to run out of money was because six months before that, we had tried to raise a Series A round. And it was a grueling process. One of the things about fundraising is, you know, you, you get good at one type of fundraising and then the goalpost changes. So like after like a couple of years, I got good at seed, seed raising seed rounds. And then Series A process is a totally different process, right? So, so we had gone through this extensive six-week process and I was... Uh, and I was the one doing most of the sort of fundraising conversations. And at the end of that six-week process, which is grueling, we had one term sheet. And the catch was the one, it was, it was from a top-tier Silicon Valley investor, like, you know, somebody who everybody knows. And the catch was, it was what's called a tranched deal, which means that they wanted to give us half the money immediately. And they wanted to have the option to give us the other half of the money a year from then uh, but completely at their option, but at the same valuation, right? Uh, which is basically like wanted to have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> and everyone we talked to, every advisor was said, said, don't take the deal, right? This is not entrepreneur friendly. This is bad for your business. Like the signaling risk, if, you know, basically like they, if, if things are going well, they'll put in the same amount of money, the second, second tranche at the same valuation, which is not good for you. If things are not going well. They will not put in the second tranche, which sends a really bad signal to anybody else who would invest. So, uh, so common sense, as well as all advice, said this is not a good idea. But I, at the time, was like, you know, this is the only deal we have, and I have worked so hard for six weeks to get this that I think we we, we should take it. And um, my co-founder was steadfast, and of course, she. You know, the good thing was she had distance. Like I was emotionally embroiled because I was the one fundraising and I was the one facing rejection. Um, 
And she had the distance to say, you know, I don't think we should do this. We should take this. We should, we should walk away from it. Or we should like hold a hard line, push back and tell them what we want. And if they don't give it to us, we walk away. Uh, and I remember like, you know, a conversation in, in her living room where, you know, we were having this argument and I hadn't slept much the night before. And literally we were like, you know, we were close to screaming at each other. And uh, uh, thankfully, uh, we, I listened to her. I, and that was the right thing to do. Uh, that we walked away from it. But in the moment, it was one of the hardest things I've done. And of course, like, you know, six months later, we're in the space of possibly running out of money, uh, which made it even harder. But now I have four years of five years of hindsight from it. And so totally the right thing to do. In this case, you know, this is very, very interesting that you point this out because typically the best deals are accomplished when you are completely unattached to the outcome. Mm -hmm. Totally, totally. That's, I think, such a great point, right? I think that you want to be dispassionate and I think in the moment, I was tired, I was emotional, I was just, I was exhausted. Uh, and I'm so, one of the many, many great things about, you know, working with a co-founder, and especially for me who having worked with my co-founder is, you know, when one of you is in the thick of something, the other person has the ability to be dispassionate and to have distance. And so, it, in, in, and in those moments, actually listening to the other person is what helps you uh, like this person has the exact same incentives as you, uh, but has more distance from the situation. And so listening to the other person is almost always what leads to the better outcome. That's a very good point. Very good point. And, and there's one thing here that obviously you had to encounter, which everyone that is probably listening, you know, right now to this episode is, is also going to encounter or has encountered in their own journey of, of building and scaling. And that is, unfortunately, you know, letting, you know, a person go. And in this case for you as an executive, so, so how was that experience for you? Yeah, thanks for asking. You know, I think this was, um, yeah, one of the things I've learned is by the time you realize that somebody on your team is not performing or is, you know, not doing, not, not, not able to do what is most important for the organization, odds are that everybody else already knows and has already figured it out. And often sort of you realize that the last, uh, right? Uh, usually their peers and their direct reports are the ones to first figure it out. And so I had this thing of like, wow, like I have this person on my team. I don't think they are quite the right fit. Uh, not because they are not competent, right? Like in fact, the very fact that we hired them meant that they were very, very competent, but they were just not the right fit for this job at this time. And, you know, one of the fears you have is, wow, like, what's it going to do to team morale? Odds are that if you're having that conversation in your head, the team, the, 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 the emotional response of the team when you actually make that decision is likely going to be relief right? because they've already sort of figured this out. And often the emotional response for the person also, well, there will be some anger and some denial. But eventually, when they go home and think about it, it's also often relief because they know also that they are not the right fit for the job, right? So, so, but the first time, you know, doing it for the first time, especially with a senior person, uh, for me was not easy because uh, it, you know, it just it sort of felt like uh, it, 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 it felt like I was letting them down, partly because one of the, you know, especially when in an executive role, when somebody fails, it's at least as much on me. Uh, for either having made the wrong hire or not onboarded somebody successfully, right? So, so I think part of it was just sort of me coming to terms with the fact that I had failed 
uh, in hiring and onboarding the, the right person. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, too, that, that, that happened when you're at this point, and, and maybe it has happened to you, I mean, at least it happened to me, is that you try to reorganize things, you know, you try to put that employee on another role, and it's just like becomes like a toxic type of environment that you're creating, you know, managing. Don't, totally. And thankfully, I was very fortunate to have good advice. So while I was like, oh, maybe we can move this person to an advisory role, I had good advice. You know, I have a board member who's been an entrepreneur twice, uh, and He's just great at giving tactical advice. And I have, uh, I had, you know, a couple of other advisors and uh, other CEOs that I could call and talk through this. And thankfully, like we, we sort of took the clean and easy way out, uh, not the easy way out, but the clean way out. And, and that really helped. But you're right. You, you, you know, it's, it's a, you just have to, you know, it, it, it is the kind thing to do to relieve them and let them find what is great for them and what they're going to be great at. Right. It doesn't feel like that in the moment, but you're actually doing the right thing. Absolutely. Uh, for what it's for, this person's thriving in their other role, right? Not surprising. I think they're a super competent, really accomplished person, just not the right fit for the job. And so one of the lessons for me was, uh, which I think Ben Horowitz talks a lot about in, in, in his writings is, especially when hiring executives, don't hire out of a central casting, uh, right? Like you, you want to hire the sales leader who is right for your company at your stage, not this incredible sales leader who uh, built the sales function at Facebook, right? Like that's probably not the right person for you. And I think one of the things we've done since then is every time we open a new exec, right? We, you know, we're just hiring a CFO. So we, I did this last night um, is we rank order all the, we sort of make a list of all the possible skills that you might want, right? Uh, on experiences that you might want in the person. And then as a group, uh, the hiring panel says, which four or five of these are must-haves for the next 18 months? And then everything else is like not not uh, important. And when you go through that exercise, it's really clarifying. So, And if I had done that exercise when I'd hired this executive like you know, a few years ago, uh, I don't think we would have hired that person. That's interesting. And I, and I know that also part of hiring too for you, values are very important. So how, how do you think about values when, when you're hiring people? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that, you know, early on people would say, uh, is somebody a culture fit, right? And, 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 and over time, I realized that that is really, culture really boils down to, it's not about ping pong tables. It's not about happy hours. We do all those things, but it really boils down to what behaviors as a group are we going to reward and incentivize? And what behaviors will we not stand for and penalize, right? Uh, that's really ultimately what becomes your culture is, is, you know, what, what you do is what becomes your culture. And if you think about then, you know, what behaviors you reward and what behaviors you don't stand for, that's basically your values. And so culture is synonymous with values. And so now when hiring, when somebody says, uh, well, this, it doesn't happen anymore because we've, we've, we've institutionalized it from the company, but early on when people would say, I think this is not a culture fit. The question I would ask in the interview debrief was, would be, okay, which of our seven values is this person not aligned with, right? Because otherwise you're just saying this person doesn't look like me or I don't relate to them because I my life experiences are different than theirs. But really, let's talk about like, is there a values misfit here? Uh, so yeah, and I think one of the ways we realized that very early on is you know, when we were a small, when we were a small team, I remember we were, I think like 20 people or so, we had a team in San Francisco and a team in Bangalore from the get-go. From like day one, we had two offices 
And we would bring these teams together for an offsite uh, in uh, in some other part of the world. So I remember this was in Thailand. And going into this offsite, I remember being very stressed because I was like, there's eight or nine people in SF and there's eight or nine people in Bangalore. And we're going to get to this offsite. And then the Bangalore engineers are going to be totally different culturally from the uh, from the SF sort of business product and ops teams. And we're going to have to force people to interact. And it's going to be really awkward. Right. Uh, so our offsite began on Sunday. I got there on Monday morning because I was coming from a wedding. And what was mind-blowing for me was people had chosen, we, at the time, this company was small, so we just got an Airbnb and there were no assigned rooms. And people had chosen to room with each other uh, across offices. And by the time lunch came around, people were breaking into small groups, you know, just like organically that were mixed groups. And we didn't have to do anything to to actually force them to interact. And that was surprising to me. But then, you know, my co-founder and I, we were sort of talking about this and we were like, wow, this is this is great. And uh, why is this happening? We must have done something right. And, and in that moment, we realized, and this was before we had formalized our values or institutionalized any of the things that we have in the company today. But we realized what was happening was we were hiring for the same set of values. And so even though you would expect that somebody who is, you know, an engineer in Bangalore would be very different from a ops person in SF, uh, you know, we were looking for the same things, which was open, honest communication, uh, the ability to take ownership. We were looking for people who are really mission driven uh, for the company. And we were looking for people who just were really excited about learning and intellectually curious. And so when you hire for the same values, people, people get along easily. Absolutely. And how many people do you have now? Gautam? But two, 200. Wow. That's uh, quite a quite a number. So I guess uh, you know, imagine that um, that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up five years later. I mean, insane snooze, right? And you wake up in a world where the vision of Springboard is fully realized. What what does that world look like? Yeah. First of all, when you find that five year snooze button, make sure to send it to me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I have trouble sleeping more than six or seven hours. So. Um, yeah, you know that's a that's a great question. See, you know, for for generations, we've been in a world where people had one job or two jobs throughout their career, right? My dad had one job in his career. Most people in our generation, their parents had like a couple of jobs in their career. The average millennial is going to have fifteen jobs in their career. It's a fundamentally different world than we have ever lived in before. And while the economy and work have completely changed, education is still stuck in the same place that it was 500 years ago. Right? Uh, and that creates a massive opportunity uh, for change. And so we believe that this current generation will, instead of consuming all of their education upfront, you know, until their mid-20s, instead, you know, go back to transformational learning every few years, every five to seven years. And so instead of spending $150,000 on a master's degree when you're 25, you'll spend maybe $10,000 six times in your career every five years. And if you're going to do that, you have to do it from anywhere in the world, uh, from the comfort of your couch in your pajamas, but still be able to have the transformational uh, career change that you want. So we, we set for ourselves a goal uh, at the start of this year that by the end of 2030, so in 10 years, we want to transform 1 million lives, which is to put a million people into careers they love and uh, through our intensive online programs, which means that by that point, you know, you're going to be going home uh, for Christmas and your cousins will have taken a springboard program or you'll be hiking 
in a new country when that's possible again. And you'll see people in a springboard sweatshirt because they are graduates of the program. And you'll see people in you know, springboard alumni in in top places uh, in the world, in power, in leadership positions and hiring back from the programs. So really, I think, you know, transforming lives, that's that's what we really do. And we want to transform lots of people's lives because when you do that, you change not just their life, but also that of their community and their, and the people around them. That's amazing. That's amazing. And one of the questions that, that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, if you had that opportunity to go back in time, Gautam, and have a chat with your younger self, maybe that younger self that in 2013 was about to launch Springboard. Now, knowing what you know, if you could go back in time and, and give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll give you two. Uh, one is, I would say, just start early and take the plunge. Uh, you, life is too short to be doing things that you're not fully committed to. And so this is the advice I would give to maybe going back to 2005, where I would say, you know, take the plunge and start a company earlier. Because uh, you keep telling yourself you want to learn things uh, before you start a company. Uh, but this to, to my 2013 self, uh, the advice I would give is... Most importantly, don't get stalled by decisions, right? So there are times when you are facing a really challenging decision and what ends up happening is you kind of get stalled and stuck and don't make any decision and sort of stay in this limbo. And that's the worst thing you can do for a business or the worst thing you can do for even people around you. So just it's better to make a wrong decision than to make no decision. Uh, and I feel like that's something in the first few years of the company uh, I learned the hard way. Is the worst thing. It's like climbing a mountain, right? Like the worst thing you can do is stay still because you freeze to death. It's better to go in the wrong direction because then you get some information, you come back. So just keep learning and keep getting information. And every time you make a decision, uh, it leads to learning. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Gautam. So I guess uh, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I'm, well, uh, so springboard.com, that's our website. I am Gotham at springboard.com. Always happy to hear from other entrepreneurs, uh, founders, people who want to uh, go down this journey. I had a lot of help in getting this far and uh, I would love to, you know, I can never pay it back. I can only pay it forward. Amazing. Very, very profound. So, uh, yeah, well, Gautam, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Uh, Alejandro, thank you for having me. This is a, a fantastic opportunity and I'm excited to see what people have to say about this. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.